In the last year or so, we've seen a slew of reports about the state of the environment, showing that we're close to, or perhaps have already gone beyond, the point of no return with climate change and several other planetary boundaries. It's genuinely scary stuff. And yet other reports show real progress and suggest that we're in with a chance of tackling the climate and nature crisis. We have the technology, but what's holding us back is social and cultural change. I'm deeply worried by false and naive optimism, but I genuinely believe success is possible. But only if, as sustainability leaders, we adapt and evolve our approach. Stay with me as I explain why and what I think this means for how we do sustainability leadership in 2024. This is Leadership for Sustainability, the podcast for sustainability directors, managers and pioneers who want their organisation to make greater progress on sustainability. It's so good to have you with us. I'm Osbert Lancaster. I'm a sustainability consultant, facilitator and director of sustainability leadership specialists, Realize Earth. We've been helping sustainability leaders for over 20 years, and it's clear that how you engage, inspire and work with colleagues and stakeholders is what determines whether sustainability strategies and initiatives succeed. That's why we focus on the people side of sustainability in our work. On this podcast, we share our experience and that of our guests to help you make greater progress, progress that genuinely tackles the climate and nature crisis. I've taken a bit of a break from work and podcasting over the last couple of months due to some family commitments and the holidays. Things are settling down now and I'm looking forward to being with you more regularly again. These last few months have been an emotional roller coaster. I was thinking deeply about the state of the environment and at first I got myself into a spiral of anxiety and despair. And then I tried to understand what I needed to work out so that I could move forward. And it boiled down to this question. How can I and other sustainability leaders work for positive change without being overwhelmed by the scale and the momentum of the climate and nature crisis? It's taken me a while and the rest of the episode is my first tentative answer and I'm genuinely positive and hopeful. If like me you're uncomfortable with naive or artificial optimism, take it easy. I'm definitely not dishing out platitudes about just one more push and we'll save the planet. This is very much a work in progress, an ongoing inquiry perhaps, and I'd welcome your thoughts to help shape mine. If you're listening to this soon after it's published, do join the discussion that we'll be having at our round table on Wednesday the 7th of February. See the show notes for details. Before we dive in, I'll give you a sketch of where I'm going. First, a quick review of the state of the climate and nature crises. Then, why I believe this means we need a new approach to sustainability leadership. And finally, my draft sustainability leadership manifesto. Nine things we need to do differently in 2024. Let's start with a quick review of the state of climate and nature. There have been a number of reports in the last year, and they've been pretty well covered in the media. I'll include some relevant links in the blog based on this episode. Here are the headlines from three of those reports, all from reputable scientists and organisations that I find especially worrying. Here's the first one. If humanity wants to have a 50-50 chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, we can only emit another 250 gigatons of CO2. Here's the important bit. This effectively gives the world just six years to get to net zero. And then we have a report by around 50 scientists for the Earth Commission, published in Nature, pointing out it's not just climate, 
we've already breached most of the Earth's limits. Climate change, biosphere, fresh water and nutrient use in fertilisers. And finally, a report by 200 scientists from around the world which identifies over 25 tipping points in the Earth system, including the collapse of ice sheets, degradation of ecosystems and disruptions in the ocean and atmospheric circulations. We're close to the point of no return now with some of these, and the loss of coral reefs and collapse of vital climate systems are becoming likely. As I'm sure you know, these aren't isolated reports by mavericks. This is mainstream science, and there are plenty more reports and studies showing that without radical action, we'll face extraordinary disruption and devastation. And yet, if we don't look too closely, and putting aside wars for the moment, the world seems to be getting on just fine. It's easy to believe that things aren't actually that bad when it comes to nature and climate. But I find these reports deeply scaring and depressing. How on earth are we in this state? Why are politicians and business leaders still not taking sufficient action? Why is business as usual still even on the agenda? I'd like to share a quote that's been on my mind a lot recently. It's from an early environmentalist, Aldo Leopold, writing in 1949, a time when the damage we were doing to nature was only just starting to become apparent to a small number of pioneers like himself. Here's the quote. One of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on land is quite invisible to the layman. An ecologist must either harden his shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his business, or he must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. Over the years, I've often felt like Leopold, feeling the pain that comes from knowing we're destroying nature and feeling alone because so few other people, apart from other sustainability folk and environmentalists, seemed to know or to care. But things really have changed. Back in 1949, Aldo Leopold was one of the few who saw what was happening and was concerned. Today, there is more and more evidence that most people not only know the situation is bad, they want to do something to help and they believe governments should do more. For example, in 2021, Ipsos Mori surveyed people across the G20 nations for the Global Commons Alliance, and they found 73% of people in G20 countries believe the Earth is approaching potentially abrupt or irreversible tipping points because of climate action. 83% are willing to do more to become better planetary stewards and protect and regenerate the Global Commons. 73% agree their country's economy should move beyond a singular focus on profit and economic growth and focus more on human well-being and ecological protection and regeneration. Of course, awareness and concern doesn't always translate into action for very understandable reasons, but this and many other surveys show not only that the common assumption that most people don't know and don't care is just plain wrong. But there's also a huge potential here that sustainability leaders can help unleash. This turnaround of public awareness and concern is hugely significant, and we've made real progress in other areas too. Switching from fossil fuels to renewable energy is essential. We're not there yet, but we've made progress that seemed unimaginable when I was getting started in sustainability. 
Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency and the world's foremost energy economist, apparently, said recently, Despite the scale of the challenges, I feel more optimistic than I felt two years ago. Solar, photovoltaic installations and electric vehicle sales are perfectly in line with what we said they should be to be on track to reach net zero by 2050, and thus to stay within 1.5 degrees. Clean energy investments in the last two years have seen a staggering 40% increase. End of quote. This growth in renewable energy generation is just one example of a positive social tipping point. The same team that identified over 20 negative tipping points in the Earth system that I mentioned earlier also identified possible positive tipping points in human technology, economics, politics and social behaviour. They also found we are seeing positive tipping points in action already in areas ranging from renewable energy and electric vehicles to social movements and plant-based diets. As well as technological change, changes in people's behaviour will be crucial to tackling the climate and nature crises. So it's hugely exciting that research like this is identifying more of these positive tipping points and that their potential is being recognised. So where are we with the climate and nature crises? At its most basic, we're looking at a race between negative environmental tipping points and positive social tipping points. The question is, Will we shift our power generation, our agricultural systems, our consumption levels, etc., fast enough to prevent the breakdown of the climate and other Earth systems? Some very smart people with access to credible data do believe it's possible. For example, Hannah Ritchie's new book, Not the End of the World, argues that we could be on track to achieve true sustainability for the first time in history. That's hugely exciting and positive. But maybe it's just me, but I still feel deeply uneasy. I worry that conventional sustainability leadership is not up to the job. As Einstein famously said, we can't solve the problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. I know it's a bit of an old chestnut, but it really captures the issue we're facing. And that's the problem with conventional sustainability leadership. Like most of our dominant culture, it ignores three fundamental realities. And that means we're trying to solve problems with the same kind of thinking that created them. Before we go any further, in the rest of the episode, I'll be talking a lot about the weaknesses of conventional sustainability leadership and about new approaches I believe we should adopt. And you're more than likely to find yourself saying, but that's not new. I've been doing or thinking that for ages and so on. There's no single school of sustainability leadership. There's a rich variety of approaches and philosophies and so on. But I do think it's fair to say that there is a dominant conventional approach that's rooted in the past. And in my experience, when you talk privately, in depth, with many conventional sustainability leaders, you discover that their private feelings are at odds with the professional persona they feel obliged to adopt in public. So to keep things simple, in this episode, I'm contrasting conventional and new approaches to sustainability leadership. But the reality is it's a spectrum and we need to shift rapidly towards the new end of that spectrum. Right, back to the three realities that conventional sustainability leadership ignores, to our peril. The first reality is that we are part of nature. But for centuries, our anthropocentric culture has trained us to feel separate from nature and to believe that we can and should dominate and control the rest of the living world for our own benefit. And as you know, the results have been disastrous not just because of the destruction we've caused, but because feeling connected with nature is good for us. Research demonstrates 
that the more you feel connected with nature, the more you care about nature, the more you care about people, and you have a stronger sense of purpose and meaning in your life. You're more creative and you have greater physical and mental well-being. And these are exactly the sort of benefits that society as a whole needs and that will make us better sustainability leaders. The second reality is that humans are naturally kind and caring. I mentioned some of the evidence for this earlier, and there's plenty more. Unfortunately, our consumerist culture assumes people are selfish and that they can only be motivated by carrots and sticks. This creates a vicious cycle with government policies, business and the media and more, all reinforcing and rewarding selfishness and greed. The results include ever-increasing resource use and pollution as people seek happiness through overconsumption, growing individualism as people's natural instincts to look out for each other and work together for the common good are suppressed, and as sustainability leaders we often use carrots and sticks to motivate action rather than tapping into people's deeper humanity. The third reality, ignored by conventional sustainability leadership, is the potential of collective action. Our managerial culture would have us believe that the social change we need for sustainability will only be achieved in two ways. The first is top-down government or organisational policy. The second is the result of the choices of individuals, either as voters or as consumers. And these are both crucially important, but what's missing is the space in the middle, collective action. This is where people see the current system is failing them and those that they care about, and they work together towards a shared positive vision that matters deeply to them. We often think about collective action as protest movements, the suffragettes, civil rights, anti-apartheid, that disrupt and overturn the status quo, which is maybe one reason why the establishment isn't keen on collective action. But collective action is also about creating change by building alternatives, like the fair trade movement, tech for good and the B Corporation movement. As sustainability leaders, we can collaborate with other sustainability leaders in our sector and work with people at all levels in our organisation who want to create positive change. Collective action comes with a powerful side effect. It feels good. We feel empowered by working on something worthwhile. We have a stronger sense of meaning and purpose, and we can draw on each other's skills, experience and creativity. So I've picked out three realities that are ignored by conventional sustainability leadership. We are part of nature. People are kind and caring. Collective action has a huge potential. There are plenty more ways in which conventional sustainability leadership risks trying to tackle the climate and nature crises with the same thinking that created them. But these three are a powerful starting point for us. I'd like to take a moment just now to let you know about our next event. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know that most people are concerned about climate change and would like to make more sustainable choices in their lives. Despite this open door, most business sustainability initiatives fail to engage staff, and as a result, they miss their targets. The reason is that most initiatives don't pay enough attention to what genuinely motivates colleagues, nor do they recognise the barriers that hold back even the most highly motivated employees from taking action. On Wednesday the 22nd of May, join me and Jamie, the creator of the Most Sustainable Workplace Index, and learn how the index can help you tap into and unlock most employees' latent motivation to do the right thing for people and planet. You'll discover how the index can help you to gather hard evidence of what's working and what needs attention across locations and divisions and seniority levels. 
you'll identify the focus areas where the sustainability team, L&D, HR and so on should allocate time and resources to make the most progress. And you'll discover how you can demonstrate year-on-year -year progress with consistent and comparable data on sustainability culture. And you can use that for action planning, reporting, benchmarking and accreditation. Do join us on Wednesday the 22nd of May. You'll find the link in the show notes. OK, so we're in this extraordinary situation. We've made good progress in some areas, but we need to accelerate to reach the positive social tipping points. We're heading rapidly towards environmental tipping points with devastating effects on people and nature. And we don't know, and we can't know, if we'll actually succeed in pulling back from the brink. This isn't just a technically complex situation. It's also emotionally complex for us, our families, our colleagues, and for people across the world. The situation we all face affects people in different ways. While some will feel motivated and inspired to act, there'll also be anger, despair, and denial. And while 80% of people are aware of what's happening, many will be too overwhelmed with other pressures, with work, family, the cost of living crisis, and so on, to give the climate and nature crisis any thought at all, beyond perhaps it being yet another anxiety bearing down upon them. This all means that the people side of sustainability, whether it's engaging with senior management, colleagues or other stakeholders, is more important now than ever before. So, given all this, what does sustainability leadership that's fit for 2024 look like? I certainly don't have all the answers, and to an extent the answers will be different depending on your own situation, but I'd like to offer you my tentative conclusions, perhaps a provisional sustainability leadership manifesto. And as I do this, I want to come back down from the big picture and the generalisations and suggest nine specific attitudes, strategies and practices that we should pay attention to. It's easy to say, change your attitude or shift your mindset. It's much harder to do, especially when it means going against the culture of your organisation. Often this is something you have to actively cultivate. That's what I've found. I've also found it really helps to work on this with other people on the same journey. Here are three attitudes I invite you to explore and to adopt. Let go of saving the world. Instead, focus on creating the future we need. We've been conditioned to think about saving the world or saving the environment for too long. At a psychological level, saving the world can stimulate negative and reactive thoughts and emotions, closing us down and making us less effective. Once we start focusing on the future, it creates a different, more positive energy for you and the people you're working with. It opens up possibilities and unleashes creativity. Here's my second suggestion. Accept uncertainty. Instead, foster the conditions for positive change to emerge. Management education and organisational culture has conditioned us to believe that we should be able to work out exactly the outcomes we need, to plan and deliver the necessary changes successfully. The reality is that uncertainty, whether it's humans' ability to tackle the climate and nature crises, or our ability to control the outcome of a sustainability initiative, is a fact of life. Complex systems like society, organisations and people are inherently unpredictable. Once we accept that we can't control everything, we can work with others to identify and then foster the kinds of interventions that will take us on the right path. My third suggestion, 
Don't worry about what others are or aren't doing, unless they're within your sphere of influence. Instead, apply your energy where you can make a difference. It's easy to spend too much time worrying about things we can't control. Think of the way events like COP can dominate our media consumption and our thoughts. Unless we're directly involved, what matters most for us in events like that is the result, not the process. It's good to be informed, but if we're not careful, our feelings of despair and sense of powerlessness can overwhelm us, sapping our energy and effectiveness. Instead, recognise the tremendous potential that you have through your work to genuinely contribute to the positive social tipping points that we so urgently need. Flipping that around, those positive social tipping points will never be reached unless there are more people like you working to take us towards them. That was the three attitudes. Now let's move on to strategy. So my fourth point in the manifesto, develop and deliver initiatives that offer multiple benefits for people and nature. We don't know, we can't know whether we'll succeed in tackling the climate and nature crises. What we do know is that climate and nature are inextricably linked. For these reasons and others, as a society, we need to find solutions that ideally have multiple benefits. Solutions that reduce carbon emissions, help us adapt to climate change, enable nature to recover and regenerate, enhance well-being and increase resilience. We may be constrained in our organisations and there may be good reasons to prioritise particular issues. But as we shift our attitude from saving the world to creating the future, we need to shift our actions from reducing our impact to creating the conditions for nature and people to flourish. And my fifth, seek out opportunities to collaborate and cooperate. Collaboration is crucial to tackling the climate and nature crises. Indeed, when I interviewed Alan Hendry, sustainability director with Mott MacDonald, he pointed out that no less than four major reports recently identified lack of collaboration as a barrier to success. So seek out opportunities to collaborate and cooperate at every scale, within your team, across your organisation, up and down the supply chain, across your sector and beyond. And six, recognise and foster people's desire and capacity to care for each other and for nature. Too often people are seen as part of the problem because it's widely believed that they don't know, don't care and won't take action. It's not true. It's simply not true. And I've mentioned just some of the evidence for this earlier. Time and time again, I hear that when sustainability leaders listen to what colleagues are concerned about and interested in, they discover many people are just waiting for someone to take them and their ideas seriously. So reach out to people across your organisation, listen to them and their ideas, and work with them to unleash their enthusiasm and ability. We talked a lot about the practicalities of this in our first series, and I'll link to a couple of episodes in the show notes. That was the three strategic approaches I invite you to bring into your sustainability leadership. The final section is practice. And I guess in some ways these three areas are also strategic. But in my mind, these are about getting started and focusing on self-development and looking after yourself. So, number seven, build your trusted support networks. I can't imagine not doing sustainability leadership of some kind. I find it hugely inspiring and rewarding. But at times it's really tough. I've struggled to solve problems and find ways forward. I've been emotionally wiped out by some people's negativity and by the devastation of nature. What's helped me overcome these practical and emotional challenges is other people. 
people who understand because they're also working in this field, people I trust to listen to me, to ask the right questions and to offer the support I need. If you don't already have a few people like this, find them and work together to develop your ability to be there for each other. And number eight, strengthen your sense of connection with nature. I talked earlier about how the more you feel part of nature, the more you'll have a greater sense of meaning and purpose and better physical and mental health and many other benefits. I know from my own experience what a difference this makes, both for myself and for people we work with. Strengthening your sense of being part of nature will help make you a better sustainability leader. It's easy to get started by simply making time to notice, experience and appreciate nature whenever you can. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Nature Connection Handbook from the University of Derby, which will give you some really helpful suggestions. And number nine, develop your skills and capacity with the inner development goals. Sustainability leadership in 2024 needs skills and capacities that are generally not covered in conventional education and professional development. As the Inner Development Goals Initiative puts it, we lack the inner capacity to deal with our increasingly complex environment and challenges. Fortunately, modern research shows that the inner abilities we now all need can be developed. So the five dimensions of the IDG framework are one, being or relationship to self, thinking, cognitive skills, three, relating, caring for others in the world, Four, collaborating, social skills. Five, acting, enabling change. Behind these five dimensions are 23 skills and qualities. Follow the link in the show notes for more details. All of these skills and qualities are part of being human. You'll likely recognise them in yourself and appreciate why they are so important for sustainability leadership. And once you do, you can start to consciously develop them and apply them to your work. So, to recap, here are the nine things I believe us sustainability leaders need to do more of in 2024. Under attitude, one, let go of saving the world. Instead, focus on creating the future we need. Two, accept uncertainty. Instead, foster the conditions for positive change to emerge. Three, don't worry about what others are or aren't doing unless they're within your sphere of influence. Instead, apply your energy where you can make a difference. And under strategy. Four, develop and deliver initiatives that offer multiple benefits for people and for nature. Five, seek out opportunities to collaborate and cooperate. Six, recognise and foster people's desire and capacity to care for each other and for nature. And under practice. Seven, Build your trusted support networks. Eight, strengthen your sense of connection with nature. And nine, develop your skills and capacity with the inner development goals. As I said earlier, I've been using this episode to clarify my thoughts about the state of the world in 2024 and how sustainability leadership needs to change and evolve to be fit for this unprecedented situation. I'd love to hear what you think both of my analysis and of my suggested manifesto. Is any of this useful? Is it clear? What's missing? What might you do with these ideas? Join us at our online roundtable at 12.30 UK time on Wednesday the 7th of February 
to be part of the conversation and the evolution of the Sustainability Leadership Manifesto. You'll find details of how to register in the show notes. And on the subject of show notes, that's where you'll also find links to the articles and other resources I've mentioned in this episode. I'm Osbert Lancaster, and this is Leadership for Sustainability from Realize Earth. Before you go, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Vaclav Havel, the Czech author, playwright and dissident. His civic forum party played a major role in the Velvet Revolution that toppled the communist system in 1989. It must have seemed like an impossible struggle at times. I feel he's someone who has some insight that's worth listening to about hope and optimism. He said, Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It's not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out.